Hello, and welcome to Show Me History. I'm your host, Amy Blinkenship. This is the second episode in a three-part series, 1849, The Year from Hell. Today, we'll discuss the Great Fire of St. Louis of 1849. I want to address three components of the fire before we get to the details. The levee, the steamboats, and the fire company. First, let's talk about where the fire started, the levee. The levee was the center of activity in St. Louis, but had not seen much improvement since the days of our founding fathers. It had no docks or piers. Most of the area was gravel or dirt, and there's only a very small section that was actually paved of stone. To accommodate as many boats as possible on the levee, the dock masters tightly packed in boats to unload people and cargo. The boats were so close together that you can jump from one to the other. Next to the levee was a row of warehouses containing goods of all kinds. And what didn't fit in the warehouses was just stored on the levee itself. Thousands of tons of cargo arrived in St. Louis each day, so there was a substantial amount of goods just sitting on the levee. And the steamboats. They're basically just floating disasters waiting to happen. They are very prone to boiler explosions, and they're made almost entirely of wood, so they're kind of like floating tinderboxes. As the boat aged, the wood becomes dry. Embers from the smokestacks of the boat itself or nearby boats could catch the wood afire. Accidents and fires were quite common occurrences. In 1849, St. Louis had 10 volunteer fire companies. All had a strict line of command, captains, enginemen, hosemen, and pipemen. Their equipment were horse or hand-drawn engines with hand-operated pumps. They worked to save city buildings and residents out of a sense of civic duty. Not saying these men were not excellent in what they did, just saying they were volunteers. Firefighting was not their full-time job, so at times an entire company may not be available to work. Now to the Great Fire. It began on the evening of May 17, 1849. The winds were strong and steady that night. The river was higher than normal due to the unusual amount of rain received in the spring. This meant that the 23 boats docked were sitting very close to the levee. Around 9 p.m., the watchman of the White Cloud steamboat encountered a strange Irishman exiting the boat. When asked what he was doing, he replied he was only looking for a friend. Later that night, during his rounds on the boat, the watchman smelled smoke and began to search for its source. The ladies' cabin on the boat was completely ablaze. The watchman rang the bell to signal for trouble. Three blocks away, the Missouri and Franklin Volunteer Fire Companies were wrapping things up from putting out a smaller fire and were the first to respond. To get a better angle to put out the fire on the White Cloud, the firefighters climbed aboard a nearby ship, the Edward Bates. They set up their hoses and began fighting the fire. The fire on the White Cloud was relentless and continued to burn. And the fierce winds of the evening pushed embers from the White Cloud onto the Edward Bates. Now aboard a blazing ship, the firemen had to save themselves. They untied the Edward Bates from her anchors in hopes that she would sail away and burn herself out. The firemen jumped ship. This tactic had worked before, so they had no reason to believe things would be different this time. Fate had other plans that night. 
The swift current of the Mississippi River caused the Edward Bates to sail downriver rather quickly. In a macabre domino effect, she crashed into other steamboats that in them a fire as she passed. After creating a wall of fire on the riverfront, the Edward Bates finally ran aground at Dunklin's Island, near today's Poplar Street Bridge. You may be thinking, why didn't the boats just move out of the way or move a different direction on the river? Well, there's a couple of good reasons here. Um, it might be that the only person on the boat at this time of night was a watchman who probably didn't have the knowledge or skills to operate the boat. And being steamships, and early steamships at that, it takes a while to get the boilers going and build up enough steam to actually move. So there really wasn't time or the ability to get the ships out of the way. The entire wharf of ships was on fire. The strong winds caused flames from the boats to jump ashore onto the levee. And as I mentioned earlier, the levee was full of goods and supplies that couldn't fit into the warehouses. And unfortunately, most of this material was rather combustible. The levee held bales of hemp, piles of lumber, and barrels of lard and bacon. The barrels essentially exploded and engulfed the entire levee area in flames. The levee was surrounded by wood buildings that shielded the fire as it made its way into the city. After the levee set fire, soon the shanties along Locust and Vine also were set ablaze. At this point, all fire companies within St. Louis joined the fight. Fire bells rang constantly to warn citizens of the blazing inferno. The wind created a firestorm, pushing embers of blaze buildings onto the roof of the next building along the street. Block after block became enraged with fire. The city began to panic. The companies couldn't do this alone. They began to recruit men throughout the city to help. At the peak of the fire, over a thousand men were battling this fire of epic proportions. The fire began to approach the business district, and people began to empty out their stores of goods and supplies. Offices were emptied out of paperwork as much as people could carry. Mayor Barry even ordered papers to be retrieved from City Hall. The streets were sheer chaos of people, wagons, and firefighters. But with nowhere really to go with their belongings, people just stashed things in the street. And here's where the looters came in to take advantage of the situation. They helped themselves to items left on the streets and whatever was left in storefronts. Almost 70 people were arrested that night for looting. Around this time, there was a huge explosion on the levee. The fire had reached the cargo of the steamship Martha, and her cargo included kegs of gunpowder. A huge form clouded over the levee and rained down debris and hot embers. Because things weren't already horrible enough, the city water supply ran out. The hydrants were attached to too many fire engines and had to run dry. Only firemen near the river had any chance to make a difference. Men were ordered to pump water from the Mississippi River as far as they could into the city. Citizens had taken to attempting to put out fires with wet blankets, small buckets, anything they had that could hold water. I just want to take a moment here to discuss the sheer hysteria and pandemonium this must have been. The fire broke out in the dead of night, and except for a few lamps in the business district, the city is probably mostly dark. The sky is illuminated by massive fire on the levee. The streets are full of people running to and fro, attempting to save anything they can. 
and the city is engulfed in huge dark clouds that were raining down debris and hot cinders. It must have looked like Armageddon. And on top of this, remember, the cholera outbreak is still going on. So the day after the fire, the St. Louis Union newspaper had an article describing the atmosphere of the evening, and I think it really sums it up nicely. So here's a little clip it. Quote, One of the wildest and most heart-rendering spectacles ever witnessed in our city was exhibited last night. From Duncan's Island, extending perhaps a half or three-fourths of a mile, and a continuous line up the river, the burning wreck of boat met boat, and rolled their united clouds of deep black smoke and lurid flame in wild confusion into upper air. On the other hand, the long, lofty range of stores fronting the river send up a cloud of sparks and sheets of dazzling flames which threw a red and glaring light far into the darkness of night, which hung on our western borders. Here and there were seen half-frantic men running in bewilderment from point to point, scarce knowing where, or staggering from their burning homes under a load of their most precious property, followed by a weeping wife and her tender babe, end quote. So that sounds like just a terrible hot mess to me. So at this point, the fire had begun to reach the cathedral. Flames were nipping at the roof line. Men were able to put out this fire, but something drastic had to be done at this point. Countless city blocks had been consumed by fire, and now it was really getting to the heart of the business district and very close to City Hall. The fire had been raging for eight hours. Enter Captain Thomas Targi. Targi was the head of the Missouri Fire Company. A New York native, he moved to St. Louis with his family in 1836. He was a merchant and manager of an auction house, When he came to St. Louis, he joined the Union Volunteer Fire Company and served with them until 1839. And then he went on to form the Missouri Fire Company, where he currently served. Targi believed the only way to stop the fire was to stop its fuel source. They must create a block, a physical barrier. The only way to do this was to blow up a line of buildings directly in the path of the fire. Targi and his men obtained gunpowder from the city's arsenal. While one of the company's men went to fetch the gunpowder, Targi went home to see his family. It was as if he knew something was going to happen that night, so he kissed his wife and his six children goodbye and then set back out into the night. Targi and his men took the barrels of gunpowder into the buildings to be destroyed. Timing the explosions, they would set fuses for the powder and then run out of the building. The last building in the line was Philip's music store. Targi took the barrel of gunpowder into the store, but never walked out. The barrel exploded before he could exit the building. The plan worked, but Targi lost his life. He was the first American firefighter to lose their life in a fire. A second fire south of the cathedral started from embers of burning boats as well. This one was from Front Street to Third Street and Spruce to Elm, and affected mainly a residential area, but was put out very quickly compared to the huge raging fire in the rest of the city. But by dawn, most of the fire was out and the cathedral had been saved. Blocks of the riverfront from Locust to Spruce and west from Front the Third Streets were completely destroyed. These blocks had been considered prime real estate and housed many businesses. Now, they're all gone. I'll post a link to the map of the fire on our website. It's kind of really amazing to look at to see how much of the city was destroyed.
after 11 hours of raging fire, 430 buildings were destroyed, 280 businesses gone, 23 boats demolished, 15 city blocks obliterated, $6 million worth of damage occurred. That's about $170 million in today's money. Now, it's hard to determine the actual number of deaths. There was unknown number of men on the boats at the time, and poor dock workers tended to just sleep on the dock, so we don't know how many of them were down there, how many of them escaped. And this is kind of morbid, but in some cases, only parts of a person were found. So it's a little difficult to determine whose arm that was. And in the case of Captain Targi, his head was found a block away from the fatal explosion. I know, it's gruesome. For Captain Targi, his company men gathered all of the parts they could find, placed them in a coffin, and held a funeral for him at Christ Church. And because the Targi story isn't tragic enough, I gotta tell you about Mrs. Targi. The day after the fire, she gave birth to her 10th child, and he died like nine days later. But the mayor, Mayor Barry, gave her the position of city wear. So at one point, this position of city wear actually weighed goods prior to the sale and set prices and taxes. But it kind of evolved into a more ceremonious position. But it had a salary, so that's what mattered. The fire had been put out. Insurance claims are being processed. Rebuilding began. So now we need to determine... What caused the fire? On May 23rd, police began investigating. Two men, workers in the levee, were arrested for arson, but we're not quite sure what happened at the trial. There's no record of that. But many theories developed. Could it have been the mysterious man aboard the White Cloud found by the night watchman? Was it arson to collect insurance money on the boat? Was it a mattress fire that was not completely put out, but instead smoldered, causing the fire? Was it a spark from a passing boat smokestack landed on the newly painted deck of the White Cloud? Who knows? On June 2nd, police arrested the engineer and the watchman of the White Cloud for questioning. The watchman said he had met a man named Charles Blount. Mr. Blount had told the watchman that he should have set fire to the boat days ago, and then made a comment about wishing he had the money that was paid to the arsonist, and he knew who the culprit was. Between the fire and the investigation, Blount had left town on the Marshall, a steamboat. The captain of the Marshall had received information on his passenger, Mr. Blount, and notified officials that Blount transferred to a different boat, the Aramaeth, and was headed back to St. Louis. On June 9th, Blount turned himself in. After being questioned by police, it was determined that he did not stop the fire and appears to be a man of good character. No charges were ever filed. No further evidence was ever found. This case remains unsolved. And although the fire was devastating for the loss of lives and property, some good things did come of it. Um, The city created new building codes requiring all new structures to be made of brick or stone. It was kind of their form of fireproofing in the day. The city passed an ordinance requiring the extension of the levee eastward to protect boats 
fires from becoming ashore again. The wharf area was now to be a total of 190 feet from Front Street, and it was to be paved with stone. The municipal government made improvements to the city's water and hydrant systems. And both the Great Fire and the cholera epidemic led to the creation of suburbs or commuter towns. People began moving out of the crowded and dangerous conditions of the city to safer areas in the suburbs. So thank you for joining me today. Next week, we'll wrap up all the other crazy stuff that happened in 1849 in St. Louis. In the meantime, you can find me at our website at showmehistorystl.com, Twitter at showme underscore history, and our Facebook page, showmehistorystl. Until next time, I'll see you in the loo.